Hello. Against Everyone with Connor Aviv is fully funded by Patreon patrons. Uh, so it's totally grassroots. I don't have any advertisers on the show. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, and support the show. If you've been listening regularly, if you appreciate the show, if it adds something to your life and makes you think, inspires the kinds of conversations I have on the show with you and people in your life, please do support the show. Uh, so it's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. When you sign up, you get cool stuff in return, curated lists from me. Um, you can be part of the uh, monthly salon where I meet with patrons in a live chat room and we all talk about a topic. But anyway, the point is I don't have advertisers and it's not always easy to find advertisers for uh, challenging intellectual discussions about deep topics, even if you're rendering those topics into plain language, which is what I think I do each week. So your contribution is vital if you are a patron already. Thank you so much. I'm just going to say it one more time. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Now you can just pause it and use your phone to go to the site and contribute. Go ahead. Okay, welcome back. <laughs> I'm very excited to share this episode of Against Everyone with Connor and Beeb, uh, featuring Padraig Otuma with you. Padraig is a poet, uh, an author of nonfiction. He's also a peacemaker. No, really, he was the leader of the Corimila community here in Ireland, which is a peace and reconciliation committee uh, used to dealing with major conflicts. Um, I wanted to have Padraig on for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, he was just came highly recommended by my good friend Peter Rollins, who has been on the show three times now talking about philosophy, theology, and psychoanalysis. But really, I want to have Padraig on because uh, he's a much different take on theology than Peter, and it's a sort of, um, I would say in some ways, a gentler take, even though there's a lot of weight and intensity behind it as well. And I want to talk to Padraig about God, which is something that we do talk about quite a bit. You know, on this show, I talk about angels a lot, or the occult, or magic, how that fits in with politics, but I don't really talk about God that much. And I want to explore that with somebody. And so God is the starting point, but we go in all these different directions, um, whether or not we should seek or let go of power. Um, we talk about Superman, and we talk about Brexit, and we talk about loneliness a lot, and the economy of victimhood. So anyway, there's plenty here. Uh, I'm really excited to share what I think is a warm, but also very deep conversation on God, power, and conflict with you, featuring me and Padraig Otuma. Thanks. Here we go. Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Beeb, and I am so excited to be here with you. Hello, Padraig Fatuma. Hi, Connor. Hi. <laughs> um, I nailed your name, right? Because you people did. have said it multiple different ways when yeah. I listen to them say it. Okay. I know. No, you said it very nicely. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, all right. Well, you know, let's just get into it, okay? Because uh, something I've been thinking about 
reading your work and engaging with your efforts uh, lately has been that, you know, on this show, I talk about spirituality a lot and I talk about the occult, but I almost never talk about God. Hmm. I almost never on the hmm. show. I mean, I talked about it with Peter Rollins, our mutual friend, a little bit, but uh, on one of the times he was on, but not really. Even then, we sort of talked about belief. Yeah. You know, we talked about, of course, psychoanalysis and all that. And um, so I, I thought you'd be a good person to talk about hmm. God with, and not, and not even just Christ, although we can get to that too. Sure. But, um, you know, you have a, a sort of a challenge almost in one of your books where you ask what, when the first time God cried was, and that was really, <laughs> this is a really striking moment. So mm. can we, so can you an- tell me? <laughs> but, no, <laughs> but can we, yeah, can we take it from there? Yeah, sure. I mean, God is a, a complicated question. Um, God is just a title. It's not a character. We see the idea of God cropping up in so many places. Um, the, the idea that God is singular is a really limited idea. But I, I think I th- the, the literatures, the old world literatures that have some character that's titled God in them are really worthwhile being taken seriously. Because to speak about God is not necessarily to speak about the beyond. It's to speak about power power in the here and now. What do people think is important? What do they think is moral? What do they think is punishable? And therefore, to speak about God is to speak about us. Not because I think we are God, but because I think God is a a container for the things that we think are important in the world. So, you know, I'm thinking about the times that I used to pray to God versus the times I would pray to angels or Christ or what or just sort of cast it out, you yeah. know, and the the sort of distinctions there. And I know there's this sort of typical thing, like when my mother was dying, I would pray to God a lot, please let her live, please let yeah. her live. And then, she, you know, well, she did. I, should, I shouldn't say she didn't. She did for a while, and yeah. then she didn't, you know. And um, and then, you know, I, would just, I canceled God at that point. <laughs> and um, not out of a lack of, not out of a, you wounded me so much, mm. and therefore you can't be real, but just, I just couldn't do it anymore, yeah. you know. Um, but then I found myself coming back, praying to God for all sorts of things, offering up a kind of gratitude. And at a certain point, I realized I was going to God too much. Mm. So I don't know if you've had this experience, but I realized, like, what are, you know, like, how often am I casting something to God when really it's a question for me? Like, yeah. it really is a question for me. And I'm letting go maybe before I need to and giving sure. it over before I need yeah. to. Well, I, I wonder, does it need to be either or? I, I'm interested in how the question of prayer should locate us back in the question of agency and uh, an action and to ask something of God. In, its, in itself is to bring you into this question of, well, what am I going to do? Um, and I sometimes I think God can be a language that we use to deepen our fortitude. It, so in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this introduction of Jesus and it's long genealogies, and it's um, 42 men and five women. And those five women are all women who've had their sexual lives and their body and their safety seriously hampered by men and circumstance and religious authority all around them. And none of these women were miraculously saved. All of these women had to employ their own fortitude and agency and cunning and manipulation and presence of mind to save themselves. And what I love in that story of the generations of God, if you want to put it like that, is that none of these people used God as an excuse to 
stand outside their lives. They weren't looking for some mad piece of intervention to come into their lives. God for them was the language that they used in order to deepen their audacity, to deepen their survivability. And I really like the idea that God is a, a language we use that doesn't remove agency from us. Huh, yeah, that's really that's really interesting because I'm thinking, so uh, my listeners probably won't know who this person is, but I'm sure you will. Brian McLaren has this book, A New Kind of Christianity, is it? And this sort of proposition of that book is that as the Bible goes on, it becomes an unfolding revelation that becomes more and more aware of itself and more sort of intelligent in yeah. a way as it yeah, proceeds yeah. and that that unfolding is still happening yeah. now. But interesting then, isn't it, that uh, in, in light of that, I mean, <laughs> not, to, not to challenge Brian, although I would love to have him on the show sometime too, mm. that, uh, you know, there's this idea that you're talking about where it wasn't, it wasn't hoping for intervention, but at some point along the way, we really began to see God as like the only intervening force, or a lot. Yeah, a lot of us you yeah. know, have seen seen God that way. Yeah, there is. I mean, God, Santa Claus. You know, even words like Father that you hear spoken about God. I'm very uncomfortable with the word Father because it makes it so anthropomorphic. It's just a projection of just a super person onto that idea. I mean, I think I love superheroes, and I think Superman is a terrible, terrible superhero. I I'm <laughs> like some other ones, but I hate Superman because he's basically an American Jesus. Even and some of the more recent ones show him kind of zooming out into in inner space. And um, you know, being suspended there with his arms out in some kind of cruciform fashion, and then he's hearing somebody say, "Oh, my child is stuck in a train," and somebody else is saying, "My cat's in a tree," and somebody else is saying, five people are about to die," and, and then has to decide what to do. And that's a terrible but really powerful um, indication of the limitations of um, the idea of God. Uh, God is not character. What is God? God is energy, if there is a God, of course. But to, to take the idea of God seriously, it, we have to do so much work to disassemble um, what we know about personhood in ourselves. God isn't a person. God maybe is a function. Maybe God is something that makes things happen, the, the prime mover. Uh, maybe God is something that is about connection, or God is something about unrealized potential. Um, maybe that's those are limited ways to think about God. Maybe God's a table that's always expanding. <laughs> that's my favorite idea. Um, somebody uh, who's at Boober called God the ground of our being. And mm -hmm. so all of those ideas, nothing is perfect and everything would be limited by language. But if we are to take the literature around the idea of God seriously, you have to take the intellectual project of removing stupid ideas about some kind of Santa Claus or Superman from our mind. Yeah, well, I, th so there's a lot to pull apart in there, but th I think that the the Superman thing is really funny. So, um, one of my favorite writers, this comic book writer Grant Morrison, he, you know, wrote a Superman series for a while, and it was very, very strange. Okay. And he said, you know, and when anybody that writes Superman has to encounter this problem, like, how do you keep it interesting when, um the guy can do anything, yeah. right? So yeah. you have a little bit of an issue there. And um, I think that <clears throat> he said, you know, so he just made it all very bizarre. Yeah. Like, he, you know, he's encountering these beings from other dimensions mm. that are just completely strange. He's encountering these very, like these problems that seem almost 
like we can't even understand them as we read the comic a little oh, bit. It's really uh-huh. interesting. And so in that way, I can see Superman as like, okay, so if we want to talk about a superhero that really is fighting in the powers and principalities, yeah. you know, <laughs> then we have <laughs> something really interesting to talk about. Maybe he's angelic or something like that. But yes, I mean, I think when we think about him as just the, yeah. you know, descending, intervening, get my cat out of the tree, that's nice, I suppose. But, you know, yeah. we don't need Superman to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's the fire department. <laughs> right, exactly. Or just you with the ladder. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I um I watched recently that new season of um The Boys, which I think is a comic strip, but I hadn't ever heard of it. And uh it's about superheroes, but they're bastards. You know, they're selfish, they're violent, they're corrupt, they're in bed with money and they are um just like a big corporation and it's all about what airtime they're getting. And I thought there is a character in that Homelander who I think is like a superhero, a Superman character, but he is the most interesting depiction of that kind of superpower I've ever seen. You know, he's got lasers from his eyes and he can fly and he's strong, but he's horrible. <laughs> and I think it's brilliantly done. And he's broken as well. He's, he's messed up. And I thought that the treatment of power in that context was fantastic. Because the idea that a person with superpowers would automatically be benevolent has never really been questioned too much. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> in, some, in terms of the main characters, like Superman, you know, you've got those other people that come in wearing black plastic. They're all bad. They've got powers. But Superman's stronger than them. I think we need to, both when it comes to these ideas of projections onto superheroes, but also the idea of projection onto God, begin to come up with some new language that's interesting in order for us to pay attention. Yeah, there's a recent movie out called Brightburn, which isn't that good, but um, it's about... It's basically about Superman, so this okay. kid crashes to Earth and is found by this rural farming uh-huh. family. But at a certain point... Um, you know, something goes wrong in school or, you know, some kid just treats, I forget exactly how it unfolds. Some kid just treats him like shit yeah. and he just goes off the rails and uh. just starts killing everybody. Uh. I mean, and as like, you know, you can even just think of a little kid with superpowers would be the worst totally. thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, and, uh, and eventually, you know, but he keeps, he keeps also being afraid that his mom and his dad are going to get mad at him, you know, when they find <laughs> out, which it, this all sounds very interesting, but unfortunately the movie wasn't played out that yeah. well, but, um, but that, that some of those things mirror some of the apocryphal gospels. I've been reading the apocryphal gospels lately and there's one where Jesus um, on the Sabbath day, so a day you're not meant to be working, is playing with mud and makes, um, I think it's 12 little birds out of mud. And a child goes and um, says, I'm going to tell on you because you're not supposed to be making something on the Sabbath. And Jesus turns him in, turns that child into a withered person. Um, then that child goes and tells that child's father, who then goes and meets Joseph, Jesus's father, and complains. And Jesus strikes the father dead and then uh, the, f- the whole community come and say to Jesus, Mary and Joseph, get out of our village. And Jesus turns everybody blind when <laughs> they leave. And I mean, they're fantastical and apocryphal and daft, but they show what have we been trying to do? And there's this amazing way with them, which even in this ancient literature, you see this capacity to try to engage with what does power mean? Is it benevolent? What would I do if I had power? Mm. Would I abuse it? So the idea of speaking about God, we're always speaking about ourselves. What would, I, what would I do if I had power, if I could intervene? Who would I intervene for? Who would I not? Who would I curse? Who would I strike in, with some kind of malady? 
all of that stuff is a way of speaking about humanity rather than just this, you know, outer worldly being. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love the idea of like, you know, earlier you said when we talk about God, are we talking about ourselves? But also maybe when we talk about God, we're talking about humanity, you know, as yeah. as a whole. But <clears throat> yeah, I'm also thinking about the concept of power. So I've heard you talk about power a lot. Well, people ask you about power a lot. I'm not sure you would talk about it on your own, but people ask you about the power dynamics that are in the room <clears throat> when you do your some of the nonviolent communication. Is that how you would typify maybe some of it? Or? Uh, no, I, I, <coughs> I call it talking about conflict. Okay, talking so, about conflict. Yeah. So, good. Well, we'll talk about conflict <laughs> ourselves as well. But, yeah. but I mean, I, I just... You know, really early on in this series, I had my friend Gordon White on, and I... And he's an occultist, and I called that episode Leaving the Realm of Power. And it's something that I would seek to do, and I want us to try to seek to do, I think, which is to actually relinquish power. Mm. And I, and um, another, a good friend of mine, Phil Jimenez, he's, he's a comic book artist. He draws and he's also written Wonder Woman, is most famously. And um, we were talking about what would a superhero comic book look like mm. if they got powers and they just didn't they just didn't fight with them mm. like it wasn't about them fighting super villains or anything it was like well what can i do with this power you know this superpower to make it less of a power and more of just something that diffuses mm. itself into the world and i don't think that letting go of power is really a project for the most part right now that we see very often and yet it seems completely necessary to me yeah, and, and the question about power is what to do within the common good. Um, there's this uh, idea in uh, gospel analysis that miracle, which is just another form of speaking about superpower, that miracle is always for the benefit of the community, not necessarily making um, the individual who's been healed or cured or raised from the dead better, because they're going to die anyway. Everyone's going to die. Mm. And so the question is, is how do we live? And so there's a text in Mark's Gospel where there's a woman who pushes through the crowd. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Technically, she wasn't supposed to have left the house. And she wants to touch Jesus' garment because she feels, if I touch his garment, I'll be cured. And she is. Jesus doesn't know what's happening. He's in the middle of a crowd going somewhere else. And he turns around and goes, what happened? Who, who did something? You know. And it's an interesting thing about intuition. I don't think it's that he knew something. He just felt something. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a crowd once, and uh, I was standing on the wrong side of an escalator. And I felt it, lots of people were pushing. And it was all confusing, and I had luggage. And then I felt this very gentle touch on my arm, firm and gentle. And I turned around, and there was a woman. And she said, if you move over here, it'll make it easier for you and all of us. Mm. And there was a different quality of touch. So I, I sometimes think mm. it was that kind of quality that alerted Jesus to something. Anyway, mm. the, eventually the woman comes forward, and she tells him the whole truth is what it says. And he says, um, be free of your um, disease is how it's often translated, but the word in Greek is mastix, which means scourging or whipping or torture. It's a very powerful word to use. And in Mark's Gospel, the only other time that's used is to speak about Jesus' scourging when he was scourged by the Romans and whipped. So there's something amazing here in that she was cured already of the social anxiety. She was out of the house. Technically, the law said she shouldn't. And so this healing happens and really who's being challenged to this is the people who would scourge her with a rule that said, if you have this form of chronic bleeding, you can't leave the house. And mm -hmm. she's already free of it. 
but the community need to be free of it. Mm. The miracle is for the wider population. And the miracle is to challenge people to go, who else are we keeping in locked up with rules that are unnecessary? And so therefore, that's a really interesting and inventive use of power to challenge something where actually it doesn't need to be in place. She didn't need to be locked up. She didn't need to walk around in secrecy and she didn't need to have a narrative of shame about her. Mm. Um, and even though she was already pushing against that, what the miracle is doing is highlighting to the community, none of you need to have that. Mm. And that's a really interesting use of power. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of... It's, it's an interesting use of power and in the context of healing, right? And I think so much of... Medicine and healing is really just about a language. It could yeah. be the language of the signal of the thing, the little pill that you yeah. put in you and what you see know, before yeah. you. You know, I mean, that's placebo is, I love placebo. It's a, it's a semi-sexual word. It means to please, okay. you know, and, um, yeah, <laughs> and so <laughs> all medicine must have a placebo effect, whether it's it quote unquote works or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we all sort of have an expectation of this thing that we introduce to ourselves. And so we're always engaging with a story that we have about yeah. whatever it is. And that can go both ways that can go towards cursing you when you get a kind of diagnosis or it can go to, uh, assisting you. So whatever we may think about just materialistic or, um, uh, allopathic medicine, we know that there is this other sort of quality to it. Mm. And that really ties into what you're saying. Like, okay, um, like I'm thinking about people who are sexually assaulted and how when they're sexually assaulted, the chance of healing when everybody around them is saying, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to you. It's unhealable. The person that did this to you is unforgivable. And this leaves a total mark. I mean, how can you enter into a field of healing if yeah. that's <laughs> what, what's surrounding you? That's the discourse that's surrounding you. Um, and a lot of that is amplified, you know, so what, one of the ways to help people heal from sexual assault is to have better attitudes towards sex, have better attitudes towards feeling, healing, better attitudes towards forgiveness, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So you're really reminding me of that yeah. in this story of I release in some ways the community from their, uh, from, you know, their chains to this conception yeah. of what you are. Totally. It's an exorcism yeah. uh, of, a, of a demon we've made by ourselves. We've tied ourselves up in chains and the, it, it breaks that open. Um, I think sometimes people can feel desperately um, shamed about their own lives. They have a single narrative of their life about being a failure of some kind or other, an academic failure, for instance, or a failure of, as a man or a failure as a person or failure as a woman or whatever it is that's going across. And I think sometimes those stories, we, we invent little gods by the things we tell about ourselves as an individual, but also as a community. And it can be a really good thing to find a way where those little gods can be blasted away. And, mm. and the story that we tell can suddenly open up with, um, filled with possibility. And I don't mean that to say, you know, because you're worth it or, you know, you too can have the perfect life. You can't. You know, you're, you're living a life that's going to be complex. But there are ways within which the stories we tell about ourselves that limit ourselves can be opened up. Like when I suddenly realized I'm not a person who struggles with a homosexual orientation, when I thought, I'm gay, that opened up a whole world. Because I had been educated in a religious environment that said, if you say that, you're going to die of AIDS. That was exactly, that was the, those, it was A and B. That was ex exactly what was predicted. 
And I suddenly thought, I have been educated in fear and I have thought about active homosexuals in these terms that are so reductive and terrible. And I suddenly realized I'm an active homosexual because I'm gay and because I'm living in the world. And this is an act of sexual and spiritual and social being. And I don't think I've anything to fear except the kind of fear that I've been educated in. And that was uh, an exorcism, again, a little devil that we'd made up. Yeah, so I want to talk to you about exorcism, but I also want to talk about, because you've actually been the subject of a few formal exorcisms. Yes, three. Um, but I, you know, that, that concept of these little devils, in, in one uh, Christian esoteric tradition, there's an idea of... Uh, they're called elementals, but basically everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, every action we take actually creates a being. Mm. And the more we repeat our engagement with a being, the stronger it becomes. And so it's always around, you know, and I found this to be very true in my life that, you know, the more you try to sort of disentangle from the being, the the harder and harder it gets, you know, um, because you keep feeding it and it keeps sort of weaving its way around you. And so, Interestingly, when you just sort of stop thinking about it, not, I mean, some things need to be confronted in a different way, but if you just stop thinking about it and you stop sort of empowering it, usually what you think will happen is you'll have a new thought that will rise up and it'll be the sort of counter thought and it'll be very strong and then that one will get sort of canceled out and you'll have this good one. But it doesn't work quite that way because when you try to sort of create this new thought, this new story. It keeps drawing on the old one, which keeps sort of empowering it. (laughs) So I've actually found, no, if I just let it go, nothing dramatic or intense happens. It's actually just kind of flat. Mm. And that lets it go. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's the expectation that something else will happen that just keeps sort of looping that one, Mm. hooking that one back in, you know, into Mm. the conversation, you know, with myself. It's very interesting. I I mean, sometimes there can be an addiction to drama and some of the (laughs) things we get caught up in are dramatic, even if we say we hate them. And even if we do partly hate them, we are also engaged in the drama. And uh, what does it mean to replace the drama with ordinariness, with everydayness, with mundanity? And that can sometimes seem antithetical to the idea of, you know, I'll be elevated into a newer, more pleasurable form of drama. But that seems to have the same addictive qualities to life lived at a, at a fast pace. And so much of conflict resolution is about looking at what is this giving you? You know, people say, I'm locked in this conflict and I hate it. But sometimes you want to go, but what are you loving about this? What is giving you energy? Like, how many people in your life are waiting for the latest update of the drama with you and your asshole of a boss? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's entertainment, it's fascinating, and it allows all kinds of permissive behaviors to happen while I'm hating this one particular asshole of a boss. And one of the questions is, is how much are you invested in this? Would you want the alternative? Would you want the mundanity of just thinking, yeah, fine day at work, no stories? <laughs> well, especially when now we have a kind of uh, economy of victimhood, you know, where people are rewarded in various ways for talking about their wounds. Um, you know, whether that's someone asking me to write a story about my childhood sexual abuse for $200 for Vice magazine, you know Mm. what I mean? (laughs) Or like, or just to constantly say on Twitter that this thing hurt me, this thing hurt me, this thing hurt me, which will gain me attention. It's not to diminish the 
intensity or profundity of the events, but there's definitely a curation of an economy of attention around those kinds of events. So yeah. n not only is there the inner thing going on that we've all dealt with, you know, that I think people have dealt with for a really long time, but now yeah. there's a real like uh, incentivizing mm. to, to express it and to not leave it yeah. because who, who are you, who are you without it? Yeah. yeah. I have a friend, um, Peterson Toscano, and he has done some extraordinary work regarding reparative therapies that he went through. Some, um, some that happened in uh, in inpatient facilities, so-called. And he he's a he, he's an actor. He's got a one-person show about it, but he retired the show because uh, he said, you know, I'm not sure I want to. Um, keep on only telling that story he's really interested in climate change and he doesn't want to just be the guy who survived 12 years of reparative therapy he also wants to be the guy who's talking about climate change and saying i have something to contribute and we have something to be seriously concerned about here and uh and he was saying on the one i suppose lots of people retire shows but he was saying the over identification as well as the the triggering of pain and the trauma that happens, you know, to, to reenact something and then to go, fabulous, we've had 90 minutes of entertainment and it's been moving and funny and heartbreaking. You go home and try to pull yourself together. And he, I think, really wisely decided to do something different. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we... <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting because I've been thinking, you know, I'm finishing this novel. It should be done probably within a couple of weeks after this episode airs, and I'm just... It's very, 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 very dark. I mean, it is the darkest thing I've ever written, for sure. And as I write it, it's whipping up all these feelings in mm. me. It's very, you know, because to, to access it in a real way, I need to, you know, really yeah. go there. And um, and I've been thinking, you know, I tend to write really sort of, when I write fiction, is often extremely violent and extremely dark. And I just... I don't I don't think there's something wrong with that exactly but I do wonder you know like what what does it mean that this is what I this is what I give over mm. as well not just the retiring for myself to be like I need to get out of this realm yeah you know I mean I think of someone like David Lynch who you know and this is this is a sort of counterbalance to what I'm saying who makes probably the darkest art I can think of. Mm. I mean, so affecting. And then spends most of his life teaching meditation to kids and, yeah. you know, <laughs> going yeah. to schools and working on peace and how that art serves as almost a container for the evil that's yeah. within his for being, sure. you know. And so I try to sort of think of it, mm. you know, yeah. <laughs> that way as well. Totally. And as a way to work out the chaos that we live with and as a way to personify the chaos into something that um, we hope isn't causing harm but we don't know either. Right, right. Mm. <laughs> well, and then, but see, then we get into this like troubling thing where if we are creating these devils or whatever, how do we talk about whether it's climate change or political uh, unrest, whatever it is, without feeding, you know? Mm. I mean, that's really the challenge. Mm. Uh, I think one of the huge challenges right now, how do we actually exit the conflict to be able to end it. You know, how mm. do I leave without just being ignorant? How do yeah. I leave that realm of power and say, I can heal you, but I can't heal you if I'm in you yeah. too much, you know? Sure. 
and there's different approaches. Um, I mean, in contemporary poetry, you see all kinds of interesting things. Joy Harjo, who's just been made the um, Poet Laureate of the United States, first native person to be made Poet Laureate. She's just released a book, which I got yesterday. I think it's called An American Sunrise. And um, she is looking into old stories. Um, there's a poet, um, uh, Craig McRae, who has done something um, really different that's quite direct. He's got um, Terence Hayes, who's written American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. You've got Richard Blanco, who's written a book called How to Love a Country. And they're each, and this is all within poetry, but they're each trying to do something really different. And I love that. And then Claudia Rankin wrote Citizen, and that is doing it from an entirely different point of view that's positing a different readership. So one of the things that we uh, that I notice in conflict resolution and particularly then activism is the idea that all activists need to be employing the same methodologies of activism activism in order to achieve their goals and that is a sure way for activists to begin to hate each other uh, and it's a fantastic divide and conquer technique that we enact upon ourselves and one of the things that is really important in amongst activist people who are saying this is a conflict that I want to speak to is to recognize if we were to imagine 11 different, sometimes contradictory responses to this thing that we consider a social evil, how can, those 11, how can those 11 responses cooperate with each other while all keeping the main goal of opposing the thing that we say is evil in mind? Because mm -hmm. what typically happens is, you know, you'll get some people that say, you know, let's engage in some, in some conversation about compromise. And other people will say, you can't do that. If you do that, you're not, you know, your, your morals are improper. Mm -hmm. And so then immediately a divide and conquer thing happens amongst people who ideologically probably have the same critique of whatever the social ill is. <laughs> right. And we do that social ills work for them by falling apart ourselves and achieving nothing. Yeah, it's really um, interesting. Like, I've been thinking lately about, um, you know, this woman... Gemma Dougherty, is that her name? You know this how this is going on in Dublin? Do you know about this? Yeah. yeah so for the listeners, she was a journalist who at some point, I guess, kind of had, I don't know if it was a breakdown or something like that, but then just really became, what from as far as I can tell from a, an outsider's point of view, a kind of, you know, Alex Jones kind of figure where it's a super right-wing, very anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-trans, all this kind of stuff. And... So she had her YouTube channel shut down and, uh, you know, was protesting outside of YouTube. And now a lot of Irish people are doing this thing called Unicorner, where they're standing outside and protesting her protest. And, I, you know, it's been strange to watch. And I'd actually like to hear maybe your thoughts on this more broadly, if not the specific case. But, you know, at once I was thinking... You know, there's that side of me that is definitely like, okay, we need to, if someone, if there's like a creep of fascism anywhere, like, sometimes it's a baseball bat. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, sometimes yeah. you just take the baseball bat out and you just deal with it. You know, like, I mean, I'm not encouraging people to use violence in this case, but like, you know, in the sort of history of anti-fascist action, sometimes that's necessary. You just have to get there and you got to do it and it's got to be this really intense resistance. And then on the other hand, I just thought, you know... There are all these other sort of pockets of things happening in this moment, you know, uh, this kind of uh, longing to be in the global conversation about like Nazis and fascism. Uh, 
so uh, that people might be experiencing so they're trying to create those conditions in their own weird way um who's what kinds of divisions are being created by this uh conflict now ultimately i'm not out there and i'm not the one who has as much at stake in this so i support the activists that are out there protesting Mm -hmm. in whatever way they want to do it yeah um so in no way is it a combination, but it, and so I'm just thinking about these things. Yeah. My mind is sort of turning over on them because I saw how a lot of it played out in the States with certain people that some of them who we protested really loudly should have been ignored and some who we ignored should have been protested very yeah. loudly. And yeah. it's just this whole mess of like, you know, what, what do you do and what kinds of borders and boundaries are being created? What kind, you know, what, what action is really effective here. And I feel like you probably have a much better well thought out view on this than a lot of people, even well, if, even if you want to say you don't. I think I, well, I'm do. in the same conundrum as you. Uh, I met recently uh, a firefighter and we got talking about fire. I was, I was fascinated to meet someone who could talk about fire with a decade of experience about what fire is. And he spoke about oxygen for fire and how fire needs oxygen and fire will like if you can cut off the oxygen supply you will the fire will die and so that's one of the in a in a burning building for instance where is the oxygen coming from and how might it how might it travel how fast can it travel and are there any possibilities for shutting off an oxygen supply to a fire and when it comes to something that we consider to be fascist for instance the final desire is that that will cease Sometimes I worry that actually a final desire is to become famous for opposing it. And that's a different motivation inside there. And uh, perhaps a final desire is to have a showdown and a big public showdown and for that to happen on Twitter or live or on the television or something like that. Or So there, there can be all these motivations going on and I am always interested in the question, what do you want? Like what's the final, what's the final desire in your opposition do you want this to stop or do you want to become famous for you stopping it do you want to be right what's going on and there can be a really important question to ask amongst an opposing community and it's not that everybody needs to have the same but recognizing that we have different desires and that even within those different desires there'll be different practices for bringing the end to something then you realize this is going to be difficult for us to cooperate together and how can we make sure that we don't um, in the name of opposing this fire that we desire, that we despise, that we don't set ourselves alight while doing so. I think of that in the contemporary stuff regarding trans and um, trans, erad- trans eradication. Who is winning there? The people who are winning are misogynists. Like people who hate women are winning in the current um, way that the question regarding inclusion of trans women uh, in particular, is happening. Oh, you mean so? You're you're referring to the sort of UK anti-trans feminists? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's very interesting how that's playing out here, and I wonder if my listeners in America are really attuned to that. How much ground the anti-trans and anti-sex worker—they're always the same anti-sex worker. They're always the same people, almost yeah. invariably. Um, feminists have gained in the UK, not in Ireland so much. No. In fact, there's been quite a refusal of them, right? Because yeah. they tried to come here yeah. and Irish feminists were like, no, thank you. No, it is particularly yeah. across in Britain that where you see this. But it, 
in the middle of it all, I think there's there are some categories of people who hate all women. They hate trans women. And they are sitting back thinking, fantastic. Mm. These two communities, neither of which I like, are tearing each other apart in the media. And there is a success in that for people who are invested in um, voices of women, trans women, um, being degraded in public. Mm. And I, I just, I, I'm always, this is for me a power critique of conflict. It is to continue to try to think who is winning, who's benefiting from this conflict. Yeah, well, I try to think about that in general. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I thought about it with the satanic panic in the 80s, and now we have our own sort of weird version of it with mm. Jeffrey Epstein and Pizzagate and all this kind of stuff, where I think, okay, we can look at all this you know, uh, this sort of crazy rhetoric around kids being satanically ritually abused in daycares and in, you know, when they play Dungeons and Dragons, they get sucked into the satanic lifestyle. And when they <laughs> listen to rock, maybe they're going to be recruited by Satanists in their neighborhood. You know, this is in the 80s. And what was really interesting was that maybe some of that was true. Maybe some of them were being ritually abused. And very clearly a lot of these cases were just total fabricated hoaxes, ridiculous. But no matter what was happening in the content of actually the abuse itself, the people and institutions who wanted to seize power from that used it to regulate the kind of art people were able to access, the kinds of religious conversations they were able to have, the kinds of groups of people that were marginalized. And... You know, and also with the kinds of uh, sexual content that people wanted in their lives, everything across the board, um, because there were always people that were waiting sort of in the wings for these kinds of conflicts to, mm. and who had been trained to seize that moment to yeah. use it against people yeah for other reasons it's the while you're here moment yeah, right exactly yeah, while i've got your attention <laughs> i remember being um disgusted in 1999 i was living in australia at the time and um i used to go along from time to time to this um christian bookstore because they would have had some books that i enjoyed and i would guess that a good half of the books in there in 1999 were Y2K, how to respond. Y2K, Christians respond to this. And who was winning there? What were the corporations, the books that were saying, here's the things to stock up in your pile so that you can be a good neighbor to all your community? <laughs> you know, somebody was making money out of people who stockpiled all kinds of shit that they weren't going to use. But people who bought, purchased books, publishers were making a fortune preying on the fears of people and that that to my mind is an extraordinary distraction technique and i am i'm always curious to look at who's winning here who's doing this and who is benefiting and how is the the sleight of hand there's a big pantomime going on but meanwhile everybody's downloading an app for engaging with it and we're losing all of our information so there there's for me there's there's always the understory and if we're to be wise about responding to conflict we should be able to ask those understory questions not just surf on the wave of popularity that comes from being the person that opposes something and be able to think if this is something to be seriously opposed we need to have ways within which the 11 different kinds of um critical response to this can cooperate with each other rather than rip each other apart. Yeah, uh, so it's really interesting because I have been, to bring up Jeffrey Epstein again, I have been thinking about this, you know, he's, he's found dead in his cell and, you know, what happens is we end up getting in this battle 
we people end up getting in this battle online about whether or not he committed suicide or he was, he was killed. If he was killed, who was he killed by? You know, how did how this happen? Did he have a body double? Did he, you know, whatever it is. And then if you just sort of step back and look at the picture, you think, well, really, like, what could be better for everybody in in power that's connected with this in some way or another, not about him being murdered or about the suicide, but to actually push the published consciousness over to thinking, well, this is just a sort of a normal way that things are. Politicians mm. lie, and sometimes people get murdered and political things, and normalizing that and the way that drone striking a country is normalized yeah. and the way that going to war is normalized. Just, you know, and... I think that that's been this really insidious creep over, uh, you know, we used to think that, I keep saying we again, but I do think there's this idea that politicians didn't lie. And then sort of all this stuff happens with Nixon. We're like, we lied, let's hold him accountable. And then somehow that got seized on and turned into, yeah, this is just a field of lies. I mean, people just say it's complicated, it's complex and all that. And so the constant internalization and acceptance mm. of these horrific things is what's being really capitalized on here for sure it, it, through our argument of did he commit suicide or did he you know yeah and the distraction yeah. also yes because 10 days previous to that there was a weekend of two shootings in el paso and dayton totally and where's the narrative about those things going on how interesting it is that this is allowing for distraction from something that was maybe eventually going to come to a head regarding the question of accessibility to guns and accessibility to mass guns and the crisis of masculinity that is being manifested in mass shootings on a regular basis because from what I can see um, the majority of the shooters are men and so what is that saying about men and how interesting it is to be distracted and I understand the Epstein thing needs attention and maybe there's something to be discovered there but there's also something where a lot of people are dying in streets. <laughs> a lot of um, people are dying while they're out doing their shopping or in their place of work. And what's happening there? And how is the, the drama of one person's death being used as a way to distract from the drama of um, so many hundreds of people's deaths every year? Yeah, well, did you see that, like, this tweet that Freeman Dyson put out after those two shootings? No. So, I mean, we, we have a real problem i think in our culture and the u.s especially of like you know glorifying scientists and thinking that they're somehow smarter than everybody else just by virtue of them being scientists so freeman dyson is put up on this huge pedestal and then people feel betrayed when he says he just sort of like listed all the data of like well this is how many people died in the past few days of these causes and everyone's saying no you're being tone deaf or whatever Mm. and i thought well he is being tone deaf. Fair enough. You know, I mean, if you have people sort of grieving and dealing with mass mm. shootings in their hearts, and then this person comes out and says, you know, I, I can't remember what was on that list. You know, this is how many people dive, you know, I don't know, whatever, like falling out of a bouncy house or whatever it could be. Yeah. But he, but I, I did also think, you know, if we would actually look at this and not sort of think you're being tone deaf or whatever, um, or that you're being some great person by saying this, we could say there's something systemic, there's something really systemic here that mm. we need to talk about, not just in the ways that people are dying, but in the ways that we respond to different kinds of death, in the ways that certain kinds of deaths are linked together, in the way that someone can just present 
cold facts like this in the face of you know an emotive event that's happening in the american psyche all this kind of stuff there's always there was an opportunity there and as you say we can be really distracted in the move of condemning the person who doesn't say the right Mm. thing or present the right story and in fact we could think no this is an opportunity to sort of consider what what's going on Yeah, yeah for sure um Okay, so I, <laughs> I want to talk about Brexit a little bit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, you said this really interesting thing about it that I think links into what we've been talking about. You know, you said um, that it won't be solved by a border agreement or a trade agreement. Like, let's say we avoid no deal Brexit, you know. Um, Yet the problems remain. I mean, it, sure. the, the American version, although I think it's a lot different, is like, well, we have to deal with like what brought Donald Trump to power and not yeah. just think that getting a new person in the office, you know, it, um, I don't know if that's happening actually, unfortunately, <laughs> that, we're, that we're thinking in that way. But it's very clear with Brexit because yeah. this is about a, a, a kind of divisive. Totally. Yeah. And so I want to talk about that a little bit, that even if it is no deal or deal <laughs> deal or no deal yeah the echo of the fracture you know it's enormous there. so oh, i don't even know where to start one of the things that that brexit makes perfectly obvious is that british historical education in school and i'm not talking about degree level i'm just talking about you know going through school British historical education in school lacks extraordinary amounts of information about the colonial enterprise, um, about Britain's involvement in places like Ireland, in places like Australia, in places like India, um, Zimbabwe, as it's yeah. So, so many people it seems, and, and these would often be considered be people who would consider themselves good, right voting, liberal people have no idea about why is there a border in Ireland. Uh, I am, as far as possible, not referring to it as the Irish border anymore because it's not an Irish border. We didn't draw it. It's a British border, uh, and there is uh, an anxiety, I think amongst Irish people that we are dealing with not perfect facts but lots of facts the, the, the historical data but, about which we know but other people don't people don't seem to know that the population of Ireland people in Britain don't seem to know that the population of Ireland in 1845 was somewhere between 9 and 10 million and as a result of the famine a million died a million left and by 1880 the population was down to 4 million and that the famine was not a potato famine it was a policy famine there was enough beef and corn to feed us it wasn't like um, people were going to starve there was plenty of food being shipped off Ireland was supplying 40% of the food to Britain and there was a request that went to Westminster to say can you close the ports and the response that came back from the office of the Prime Minister apparently said no because um, if there are fewer Irish people at the end of this um, so much the better. And so that fundamentally changed Irish language. It fundamentally changed um, the cities in Ireland. Um, once the famine was finished, people began to flock to the cities. Previous to that, with a population of over 9 million, Dublin's population was only 200,000. Extraordinary. So it was a heavy, rural-focused population in Ireland. And that has fundamentally changed as a result of that. And then there was the desire for independence. And then there was partition around 100 years ago. And around now, at the centenary of partition, when 
Britain for the last 20 years has renounced sovereign claim over Northern Ireland and has given sovereignty to the people of Ireland for the island of Ireland. Britain is in this anxiety about sovereignty. And that seems to me to be a particularly English anxiety and an English anxiety that's related to things that happened before the 1900s. Regularly what you hear people saying in Britain is, we saved the world from two world wars. And Britain's um, conduct in the 20th century was pretty amazing. There is There was so much generosity, so much um, benevolence and munificence, so much um, self-sacrifice, extraordinary things that Britain did. However, before that century, there were 300 years of a colonial project that brought war to so many parts of the world. Eradication of people, genocides, languages gone forever, and the idea that people in their own countries were savages that needed to be civilised. And I think there there is a way within which contemporarily there's a need for a way of looking at the past that's critical. And for me, in order to look at the British past in a critical way, I also have to look at the Irish past in a critical way, because so many of the people that fled from Ireland during the famine, those who went to the United States, became supporters of enslavement. They opposed any idea of abolishing slavery because they thought, well, currently we're fairly near the bottom of the pile, but we're not the bottom of the pile. If this is eradicated, if, if slavery is eradicated, well, then we might actually be the bottom of the pile. And they supported the idea of keeping um, enslavement happening legally. And so there's, there's shame to be looked at in the pasts of so many European countries. Extraordinary shame. And I see Brexit as a desire to not look at that past and as a way to try to have this idea to go, let's be proud of ourselves. Britain has a lot to be proud of. Extraordinary governance, extraordinary literature, a fantastic humour. There's language that is amazing, that I love this English language. But there are, in the midst of that, there are shames to be explored. Yeah. And I'm concerned about that. Yeah, I mean, it also could be, as you say, well, it, it can be that and it can be that the sort of fantasy of a no deal brexit is the uh the punishment that we long for for the things that we've done that's a very interesting idea too i i mean ireland was partitioned 100 years ago and the two parties Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are there's not much between them when it comes to policy but they came down differently as to whether one of the parties said no let's oppose partition another party said no let's take it for a while and then work to undo it so Those were variations of shade in a certain sense. They weren't totally antithetically opposite to each other. Um, uh, The idea that Brexit will be solved on the 31st of October this year, if if Brexit happens then, the idea that, grand, Brexit's happened, now let's go about healing the country, repairing the wounds. Britain will be divided regarding how people voted in Brexit for the next 50 years. Partition, and Brexit is partition. Britain partitioning itself within itself, never mind from a thing that it democratically voted to go into in terms of um, joining the EEC in the 70s. Partition is measured in decades, not in days. I would guess that it'll be 50 years, that people in 50 years will be still thinking, oh, I don't want to vote for them because of what they said regarding Mm. Brexit. Uh, Britain has opened something up in itself through this that it will be paying attention to for a very long time. The fantasy that a trade deal will solve it is gone. 
there will yeah. be young people who will be asking in the future why did you vote like this and they will be getting different um, responses there will be freedom of information documents that in 20 years will come out that will exacerbate the whole thing again there will be people moving to have another vote about rejoining or leaving again if it doesn't happen this time and so something has been unleashed that will be measured for a very long time and Britain had through its colonial enterprise partitioned so many places but I don't think it's ever realised what it's like to be partitioned yourself and now it's done it to itself and that is a fascinating thing if Ireland wasn't partitioned and if we weren't bearing the brunt of Brexit I would be sitting back watching it with great intrigue <laughs> but I can't because I live in the north and from the south I Tra travel across the border all the time and there are serious ways within which people's lives here will be affected and once again the the livelihood and the well-being of Ireland and people in Ireland who live on both sides of the border is being affected by a majority population who live on the island of Britain yeah and I, I think you know I love I love the futuristic not like flying cars but futuristic framing you just gave it i mean these are all sorts of things that will result no matter what you know no matter where we go so what is the deeper way to approach this i mean I, i'm just sort of thinking about well first of all just thinking <laughs> for americans just thinking about the ripples of the 2016 election and before that the 2016 primary i mean the stuff was brewing before the you know donald trump hillary clinton showdown yeah. and how the sort of recursion of that that's happening right now people just really just fucking hating each other over the primary which is just i mean it's really you know in some ways preposterous and in some ways makes total sense yeah. to me and um, seeing the kinds of smaller divisions so we're not even you know talking about are you a Democrat or a Republican? But like, who amongst these Democrats did you think, like, uh, do, do you feel comfortable throwing your lot in with the Democrats or does it need to be one person? Yeah. Or is that not enough for you? What's shattered, you know? Mm. And I think that what, you know, the, the question for me with all of this is like, what value does this have for you? whether it's you being really like vocal about Bernie Sanders or it's you being a Trump supporter or it's you saying, no, we just need to defeat Trump no matter what. These questions of value and real interest in the values that the people have around it, what does this give to you? It's not really brought up. And I think that that's the thing that's really, I don't know if that's... Yeah, I think that that's actually new. I mean, a lot of this stuff seems like repeated cycles of history, but there is something here that is new and threatening, which is that the loss of interest um, so that someone that voted leave, you know, versus someone that voted remain, like, they, are they really interested in each other at all? Yeah. And, and is room for that interest being made now? I mean, I think Jeremy Corbyn at least is saying things up to this effect like no we all we're kind of all into the, this together like we can't talk about mm. it this way anymore but then you see the really intense like backlash for him giving these messages as well i mean these old human dynamics of blame and threat are really powerful that we in in, in democracy and probably always have been um 
is for me why I, I'm interested in biblical literature. I mean, you look at the Garden of Eden story, blame and threat are everywhere there. Don't do that or. And then why did you do it? That person you gave me made me do it. So there's these old um, addictions to blame and threat that seem to have plagued the, the human condition for a very long time, often um, locating themselves primarily in misogyny and then after that in other ways too. And I, I think there's something for us to pay attention to in that. What would it mean to have a democratic process where people disagree seriously, where we are attentive to the addictions to blame and threat that we can often fall into and to avoid those things? And I think that's a really interesting way to practice democracy. You know, some people will feel like they win, some people will feel like they lose. But I would hope that a, a, a basic ground of blame and threat could be critiqued and look at the ways within which um, what we call democracy has been utterly built on the practices both of blame and then enacting threat by carrying it out. So it isn't just threat, it's actually carried through. Yeah, I think, again, there's just something about this leaving power, leaving the realm of power here that just keeps coming up, you know. Um, how, do I, how do I engage without dominating? How do I not think that right or wrong is what's at stake here because that's a version of original sin that I don't want to be part of mm. anymore. I have to be right because mm. to be wrong is to be fallen, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I think about, there's, a, there's an occult story about Jesus when he dies um, going to the center of the earth and at each layer having this confrontation with a different kind of challenge and when he gets to the center there's this being there and I'm really not supposed to say his name even um, but he can't overcome him he overcomes everybody else but this thing uh. in the golden evil core of the earth as it's described <laughs> is just too strong and they're battling and Jesus is like I'm gonna lose mm. and then Jesus decides to lose and says oh I, I give up mm. And then he wins. <laughs> I mean, the, the being's still there, mm. but he then can come back and be reincarnated because the idea is I actually give up this. I give up all my power. I give up the the. I give up the battle. I give up the fight. And in fact, um, in that way, there's actually no way that you can overcome me. Mm. You know, and I don't even do it to win. Mm. I do it as something else, a completely different option right. here. And so I think about that and i think about it in regards to this beautiful story you tell about um some you were doing some sort of uh communication or mediation between people who were homophobic and peop and and lgbt people and at some point one of the men who was sort of homophobic said something like, is it unpleasant to be around me for mm. you all? Yeah. You know, and you say, I couldn't have forced that question on him. No. So in, in that, I see you, you, you leave behind the idea of domination and power. No, all I can do is become a negative space for which this utterance to enter into. Mm. I mean, it was an extraordinary experience of courtesy because he was the one that said, it was just as we were finishing, and he said, how many times have my words bruised you, addressing all the LGBT people in the room? And I mean, I think people just wanted to leave. So somebody went, ah, you're grand, you're fine. <laughs> and he went, don't patronize me. How many times have my words bruised you? So people started to tell him, and then he just started to ask in public, aloud, he started to ask questions of himself and his practice and the impact of his intentions. And I watched and thought, 
how can we replicate this? How can I practice what he's doing? How can I ask questions of myself in the presence of people who will be able to give me information that I might find inconvenient? How can I challenge the gap between my intention and my impact in public and be humble enough and brutal enough to believe what people tell me? I thought he was quite extraordinary. I've been changed by watching him. And I, I don't think that it, that's the kind of thing that any conflict resolution theory will say, here's how you bring, your, here's how you bring people to this brink. Um, that is a question of the soul. And somehow he was in a conservative tradition that when he realized that he was wrong, he knew that repentance is what's called for. And that's fascinating how it was his, it was his conservative practice was the thing that supported him through a public change. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the only way I would frame, like, how do you bring something like that about is the more compassion you bring, the more space for freedom there is, an actual act of free will, which is what happened in that moment, yeah. which I think free willers, these acts of free will are actually rather rare, you know, mm. mostly we are sort of pulled down, I would call it karmic, but by these karmic forces where we grew up, how we were raised, what our bodies look like, what our race is, what our language is, all this kind of stuff that, you know, is here with us from the beginning and Mm. is always sort of pulling on us to see in a certain way, but then every once in a while, like a seal sort of breaching the surface. I always use that (laughs) analogy when I say it because I'm thinking about the last line in the first chapter or the last few lines of the first chapter of Ulysses where Stephen Dedalus sees the seal come up and he thinks Mm. usurper, you know, it's Mm -hmm. this really funny moment and then the seal sort of sinks back down, but, you know, we have these moments, but they can only, we, we support them when we, give compassion to people um and it's a slowing down of our reactive process so there's space so you know again it's this like i become this negative space Mm. uh rudolph steiner says this thing the sun is a negative space and is by that virtue and and it's through that virtue by which it shines (laughs) and i think you know this this kind of light and warmth that becomes available in that and then and then it gives it back, it gives us more freedom than too, because mm. we haven't given away, no. you know, any, any part of ourselves. In fact, we've given something to ourselves to, yeah. you know, create that space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you like to, would you read a poem um, sure. for us? I picked one, which you said you don't get asked to read a lot, uh, but given the... <laughs> Given the dark bent of my artistic mind, I guess I like I'm this one. I'm not surprised. Yeah. There's some new ones that you like too. But uh, here we are, Day of the Dead. After the priest said, you shouldn't be here at this time of day, I looked at his face for any trace of shame at chasing the desperate from the raw regions of prayer. And I said, what is your name? And he said, I am Legion. And I said, are you one or many? And he said, Yes, place your bets on this. You do not belong. You will not belong. It will not be long before you long for anonymity. I gathered my belongings and left the place of prayer, thinking I shouldn't have gone there in the first place, thinking there was no one there with a kind face, thinking there was no one there. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Why did you want that one? Well, I love the story of 
the I am legion in the Bible. I love that story. It's very perplexing and strange, mm. and I think you frame it well and appeals to me. But also the weird countertension of that story and your poem and Walt Whitman's uh, declaration that I am vast and contain multitudes is another yeah. way of saying I am yeah. legion, yeah, but yeah. in a very positive, very positive way. way yeah. And and then I was also thinking about it in terms of some of the negative space stuff I want to talk. And there's nobody there, you mm. know. Um, why but, did you? Why did you? Why did you pick that one? I mean, to write, you yeah, know? yeah. I wrote it in Tasmania when I was doing huh. some work there. Um, uh, I was having a terrible day, which was really a culmination of a terrible number of years, and um, I was hearing all these voices in me um, telling me how much I didn't belong and the fuck was I doing trying to write about religion and who am I to say anything about religion and who am I to say anything and uh, I decided I was going to go to a quiet chapel <laughs> and um, pray but I couldn't get in it was locked and I was like I hate it when people lock chapels mm. um, and I wrote this there's a bit of a twist at the end of it I suppose in those last words there was no one there ultimately it's recognising that the priest this legion was me. Uh, and this priest to whom I've given all this kind of authority is saying, you know, terrible things to me, saying, uh, you do not belong, you will not belong, it will not be long before you long for anonymity. Um, and telling you, telling me you shouldn't be here at the time of the day. Realising, who is that? Um, at times I have had people to say horrible things to me. But in a certain sense, I have... Um, given them authority by giving a damn what they think if somebody says to me as they have you know you're going to hell i just think oh okay rather than being outraged about it giving the oxygen of outrage to somebody's terrible words is actually giving them more power to me and i was realizing the hollowness of this voice and the question for me is, why do I listen to it in the midst of having no belongings, in the midst of believing I don't belong anywhere? Why have I given this internal voice, which is just an internalization of a very real external voice that I survived? Why have I given that power? And what does it mean to move away from that power and to just think, I don't believe you? <laughs> what would it be like to say that? Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, that's this sort of, mm, I don't ent I don't enter. You know, if, if language, language is like, in some ways, I view it as this, it's a, you know, a dimension where we meet each other, mm. you know, and so if I don't enter into your dimension then what what am i i see you speaking you know but you're not speak you're speaking to the air you're speaking yeah. to uh yourself or the wall or 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 someone else and uh, sometimes that can sometimes it feels less lonely to be the brunt of say a, a gay slur thrown at you than it does to be gay and confident in in, in the sense that you know I watched this movie from my childhood uh, last night. It was like the 32nd anniversary of its release. Huh. Somehow that's on Twitter, this useless information. But Monster Squad, right? I saw this movie on my 10th birthday. It's about a group of kids that fight Dracula, the Wolfman, okay. the Mummy, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein, this monster. And I was so excited to watch it again. It was such an exciting movie for me as a kid. And I mean, there are just gay... <laughs> bashing slurs like throughout the movie ah. you know and i and i thought about 
that longing to be the one who was saying it, mm. you know, to be the one who was in the world of someone that could hear it and take it as an insult and have it not be true. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, the way that straight guys will play at being gay or, you know, like fake humping each other, grabbing each other's dicks or whatever it is. And, um, it can be lonely even to be confidently in your integrity, looking upon the people whose language you don't want to enter into. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Every choice is, um, is a choice to go into something and also to leave something behind. And the choice to go into being more confident in yourself is a choice to leave the belonging of anxiety behind. And anxiety promises a lot. It says, you know, we, and I don't mean diagnosed anxiety. I mean the anxiety about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a real man? What does it mean to be mature? Um, so, more, so many gatherings of men are performing a real anxious version of masculinity that to move into a more confident version of masculinity means you are leaving behind a certain form of belonging because you'll hear people talk and go, I don't fit in there anymore. And there is a loneliness with that and a solitude. But that's a mature invitation. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I think about you just saying like, okay, so there's this locked church. And in some ways, like I think our entire encounter with god is leaning against a locked church door you know (laughs) i i want i want to be let in but the best i can do is lean against the door and what kind of what kind of encounter is that Mm. can i can i feel comfortable here and and the the changing of the words be be long be long you know there's that christian wyman poem uh every ribbon yeah, thing I you know that and that's, <laughs> that was in your mind when you <laughs> well anyway it's yeah. it's great you know just where he places the commas changes everything in that and 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 so you know the title of the show against everyone with connor beeb it's at once oh i'm against everybody i'm you know just a rebellious you know like jerk and then the other side of it is like being pressed up against someone in in embrace you know yeah. and so the 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 double there mm. um well sure i can't get into the church but but here i am and yeah. i'm 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 with my i'm with myself and now what now yeah. now what do i do <laughs> and and maybe god's not in the church anyway i've been told exactly, it's, yeah, it's yeah. somewhere totally. else yeah, yeah. Could I find God in the foyer? <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. So, just one last, one last topic here, which is loneliness. I want to go into it a little bit because I felt so lonely since moving to Ireland. But I'm not upset about it. You know, yeah. I I talk to the sky and the birds and the house. It, it's something you know. And you're in this book in the shelter. It's hello, 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 saying hello. I say hello all the time mm. to things that. I feel so much company in my loneliness, mm. you know? And um, you write about loneliness a lot. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And so I imagine you feeling like a... I, it's Comfort is not the right word, but you feel a a, an, a, a, a potential or an invitation mm. in, in loneliness. I also feel a truth in loneliness. I feel like loneliness tells you something true. The Irish word for lonely is uignach, and the Irish word for grave, as in the place that you'll be placed, is um, uig. So lonely is almost like saying, feeling a little bit like the grave. 
which is to imply that loneliness for, is a foretaste of death, which you can only do for yourself, and you will go into your own death alone. And I think there's something very true in that. So much of loneliness and feeling lonely is one thing, but feeling frightened about loneliness is another. And I hear a lot of fear about loneliness. And I think that's an invitation to think, what is waiting for you? I had a dream years ago, uh, which has so many layers for me. On the dream, I was walking on top of a mountain and uh, I bumped into a guy who'd just been fired the week before um, from our, um, where we worked. And, uh, and he had been fired. This wasn't in the dream. He had actually been fired. And in the dream, I bumped into him and I said, our boss has just condemned me to death. And he said, oh yeah, um, that happened to me last week. Um, you go down the bottom of the mountain and there's a cave and you go into the cave and you sit and there's a chasm in the cave and there's a deep fire. The fire will rise up and you'll die from the smoke. And then just like that, I was at the door of the cave and I knew I was needing to go in and I was petrified. And I looked around and this close friend of mine, Neil, who I love, was walking away weeping. He wasn't, he couldn't even look at me. He was walking away weeping. And I thought, I have to go into the cave. And I woke up. <laughs> and so much of that was about coming out, beginning to become more obvious about being gay. Um, but so much of it too was also about, you can't expect that you will belong to a group of people who do your work for you. You have to do your work for yourself. And that's lonely and it'll feel like death and you don't know what's inside and it's petrifying go into the cave and it was um that that dream has guided me for so much of my life yeah i well i love this i mean i often think that actually the most beautiful it almost brings tears to my eyes the most beautiful thing in the world is that we all die alone and we, we talk about that with such fear people talk about it with such horror and yet like what where who else and where else would you want to be except totally alone yeah. in this moment that prepares you for this loss of everything, mm. you know, um, that this, you know, uh, in my experience and understanding this transformation, you know, of, of becoming this bodiless, mm. whatever yeah. we, we, we want to call it so that the field, everything we've ever known changes. You would have to be alone, you know, otherwise yeah. you could never deal with, no. <laughs> with, with what, <laughs> happens after the dissolution you totally, know yeah. and and it's just it's so it's so loving too it's this um it's this uh you know you were it all along you yeah. were the one yeah you know? totally back when i used to be very worried about heaven and hell i remember one time thinking okay so i die and i go before the judgment seat of god and I'm worried, will I be allowed into heaven or will I be sent to hell? And the narrative I'd been given was that, you know, if you engage in a gay lifestyle, the automatic assumption will be um, hell. And I heard, I read some books and people were saying, oh, you know, no, it's okay to be LGBT and, you know, uh, you won't automatically be sent to heaven because of that or to hell because of that. And all of these things were going around in my mind. And I found myself in this fantasy of thinking I'm before the judgment seat of God. And I wanted to be able to say, I don't actually mind what happens. I'm glad that I've lived my life the way I have. And what if I got before the judgment seat of God, having lived a life of total celibacy and heard, you could have 
had a partner or partners and it would have been you'd still be here being allowed in <laughs> or not or not exactly and how do i want to live my life in the here and now and the afterlife i think is sometimes a distraction for the question of integrity in the here and now and i consider myself religious i'm not sure that i'm very spiritual um, I uh, consider myself religious because I think these old stories can alert us to the powers in the here and now. And if there is an afterlife, it'll look after itself. What I'm really interested in is not being distracted by that afterlife and paying attention to the imagination, to curiosity, to surprise, to risk, to delight, to injustice, to repentance, to change in the here and now. And that's a much more exciting way to live rather than being frightened of the afterlife. Yeah, it's a... It's a it's a great way. It's a great way just to sort of take things on. I think, you know, when it comes to climate change, I really couldn't care less about climate change. But not because I don't believe in it or I do believe in it. I just don't. I don't care because it's a narrative that's so beyond my individual action. But I think that there are things that, like, do we want deforestation? Do we want plastic rain and mountains in Colorado do we want oh, you know all the fish in the ocean to be dead do we want air pollution these are concrete things that are very apparent and not linked to some narrative that seems to get away from us and drowned in information that whether you believe in climate change's existence or not or whether you care or not the things that you would do to sort of tend to the world help with that narrative anyway yeah so in some ways it's it I, I'm I'm linking this to what you're talking about in the sense that very often the things that would prepare us really for heaven anyway, or whether you believe in it or not, or 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 keep us out of hell, maybe these are things that we would we would want to do and take care of on our own, even without the existence of this certain yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. And can we develop ourselves to a place where? You know, I mean, some of them are some of them are almost automatic anyway. I mean, we're, we're most of us aren't killing people directly. You know, mm. like you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot in there, but you know, but some of them take a little bit of effort. And don't I want to be somebody who's kind to my neighbor? Don't I want to be somebody who reflects uh, upon upon my deeds and find some sort of real intentionality? Mm in them and some mm. purposefulness in my actions and some purity in my feeling, you know, don't I want those things? And don't I want to forgive myself? Don't I want to reenact a Christian plan of forgiving myself and absolving myself? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of all that. And one more thing, which is, um, you know, my, I, I experienced this, reincarnation is very present and real but the way i think about it borrowed from occult literature but is you know you drop the flower pot and then you run down the stairs and then it hits you on the head right you cause your own sort of damage so i think of myself as my own kid Uh what what kind of life do i want to have next time so what does that mean i clear up this time around you know (laughs) yeah um And I think your spiritual development has brought a kind of, or your religious development, if you're not spiritual, but has brought a kind of loneliness as well. There's that line, you'll know where in the Bible probably, but I don't. Uh, He who increases in wisdom increases in sorrow. Do you Mm. know this line? Yeah, 
Mm. And I think maybe you've experienced that in a way. Sorrow is maybe not the right word. but Sure, but some of that too is uh, like increases in wisdom. That is another way, a circumlocution of speaking about getting older. <laughs> uh-huh. And hopefully, I mean, it's not always the case, but hopefully getting older means that you have a little bit more perspective in things. And there is a sorrow that comes with that to go, gosh, what would have been like, what life would I have lived had I learned that when I was earlier? Or had I not been such a dick? Or had I not been involved in perpetuating violence? And there is a sorrow that comes with that. Um, I know a man who has been fairly publicly anti-gay for most of his life. And he knows now, he's retired, he knows now that he was wrong. But it is the, it is the fear of the pain of regret that, he, that is in front of him. It's not the ideology. That's changed. Something's evaporated. He doesn't believe it anymore. But he doesn't know how to say it because he will be overwhelmed with sorrow for what he's done. And I can appreciate that. I can understand that and think he needs bravery and courage and some kind of, I don't know, accompaniment and some kind of, maybe forgiveness is the word. I'm not sure. That's a complicated word. But um, uh, wisdom does bring its own sorrow too. Because we realized, we can realize, look at what I've done. Well, I think that's as good a place to end, um, where everybody can just stop listening to the podcast and face their life of regret. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And become wise (laughs) with your own sorrow. Um, Thank you so much for spending this time. uh, Thank you. Yeah. And Mm. everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if, the cars in the background were too loud. That's my fault because Padraig full well said, I will close the windows and I refused uh, the, <laughs> the offer. And if you can't hear it, then it didn't happen. So oh, great. But uh, anyway, thank you so much again. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. <laughs>